Raider. How's it going, podcast fam? It's your boy, Jason Craig, a.k.a. the Friendly Neighborhood Dreadhead. And I'm here with the guest that's been in a, in a movie that I know. I'm pretty sure y'all know, too. Controversial for his time. I'm pretty sure if you look back at it now, it's pretty tame compared to the things that we get today. But still, a great movie nonetheless. And it was, it was, it was a little grindhouse film from the 70s, early 70s. Y'all might have heard of it. It goes by The Last House on the Left. And I'm joined by the actor who played the young, I think you played the the youngest uh, son, right? What, it was the, the only youngest. son, Junior. Yeah, you played Junior. Yeah. Yes. My man, Mr. Mark Sheffer. How you doing, sir? Fine, Jason. How are you? Thank you very much for having me. Oh, man. Thank you for coming on. I love just talking people's ears off. So hopefully I don't annoy you. No, <laughs> no, please feel free, man. Have at it. Okay, so um, how how you doing today? Like, how is life? Um, life is superb, actually. All right, uh, hey, life, like to hear that. My life, my life, look, my life is so good. I am sometimes embarrassed to talk about it. Um, uh, I'm married to an extraordinarily brilliant, beautiful Colombian woman. Uh, my second wife. I have three adult children uh, who have grown into uh, responsible, productive, uh, uh, mature adults, uh, which I say, I don't know if they did that because of me or in spite of me, <laughs> right? right. Um, I've had a wonderful career. I still have a career. I'm in a movie right now that uh, has just opened, that's opening in festivals and has uh, called the Once and Future Smash. And, okay. I, and, and as a test, I, 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 I uh, figured something out uh, uh, after I did this film. And that, I, I, that was it. When someone calls you to be in their movie to play yourself, then apparently you've done something worthy enough to be referenced on screen in someone else's movie. So you know, that happened. And, and this is the 50th anniversary of uh, Last House, uh, of the release of Last House this year. And um, last August, I found out that uh, uh, it was part of a six film exhibit being screened at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So oh, wow. I know. Well, that was exactly what I said when I, uh, a friend of mine sent me, he said, a friend of mine, sent me a link and said, you're not going to believe this. And I clicked on it and oh, wow, are my exact words. So, you know, and, and uh, you know, I'm working on a book about my life and my career called uh, uh, Dumb Effing Luck. Uh, <laughs> I like that time. Yeah. And, and um, you know, I, I, I live a nice life and I'm comfortable, you know, it's just good, man. It's just fucking good. And I'm like really humble and grateful about it. Like I said. And, I, and I'm back doing stand-up, so, you know. All right, yeah, because I was reading on your bio, and I saw that you you really, um, it was either you started uh, you started in stand-up, or you, after after the last house, you you went to stand-up, or you were probably- No, I started, I started. started. Okay. Yeah, I started in stand-up in, in um, 1969. I quit mm -hmm. college, 
uh, I was going to LSU in uh, Louisiana. And right. uh, in fact, I went to school with David Duke, man. I oh, really? Went, yes, I did. I went to school with him. And, uh, you know, asshole then, asshole now. So you give a guy something for consistency, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's just an older version of who he was. Uh, so so um, I left college and I went to uh, I went to New York. Right. After, you know, after visiting my father in Pittsburgh and spending some time there, I I uh, I went to New York and got a job in the Catskill Mountains. OK. Uh, which back then was the, the seat of stand up comedy in the United States. And I got a job as a stage manager. So I in the nightclub, this big 1500 seat nightclub. So I, I got a chance to uh, watch every comedian on that circuit, uh, you know, multiple times and right. began to understand what it was, what you really needed to be able to do to be able to do that. And then I was, I was at the let's play the Raleigh, which is the name of the hotel I worked at for about a year. And I'm uh, uh, over that year had met a comedian by the name of London Lee based out in New York, who was uh, uh, quite a well-known young comedian uh, um, on, along the East coast uh, and had done a lot of TV and, you know, Ed Sullivan and, and Carson and Merv Griffin and Mike Doug, all the shows that comedians did back then he, he would do. And right. he was, just, he was this guy who, who's uh, uh, the premise of his act was that he was a poor little rich kid, right? That his father was this multi, multi, multi million, which he really was back then. His dad was worth like 300, $400 million. He owned a big dress manufacturing company and offices were on seventh Avenue in New York. So his name was London Lee. So I went to work for him uh, as his driver and schlepper and, you know, like all around errand boy. Right. And um, uh, then I started to I, I wrote a couple of jokes for him that he used in his act and they really worked. So then I began feeding him jokes and eventually became part of his act. We would do a little bit in his act. And by that time, I had started to like put my own five minutes together. Right. And uh, I'd go into the city and I'd go around the clubs and, you know, stand up and do five minutes here, five minutes there. Right. Right. So one, one night we were at one of the hotels up there, like a 12, 1300 seater. And uh, uh, we did the bit that we would do. And I turned to, to leave the stage and London said to me, uh, uh, come back here. And I said, what? He said, I'm not feeling well. You think you could do five minutes? You got five minutes of stuff. And I said, yeah. I crapped in my pants because this was like a real gig. I mean, 1,200 people sitting in the audience, you know, a lot of people. I was like uh, I was 19 years old at the time. So, right. so he introduced me. He said, this is Mark. He works for me. You know, he, I we met him in a, a second ago. He's a great young comedian. He's just starting out. I mean, he really set me up. He teed me up beautifully. And I went down and I didn't know what to do. I just did every joke I could think of uh, of mine that I that I had written for myself. And they're laughing and, you know, I wasn't like a killer. I wasn't like killing people, but it was very respectable. Like I'd seen professionals not do that well. And, right. and so at one point I hear London, like a stage whispering behind me, get the fuck off the stage. So, you know, it was, I, it, was a, it was, he said it like that, but I knew he was, you know, he was like mostly kidding. I turned around, I thanked the audience. I walked off. So we're driving in the car on the way back. Right. And I'm driving and he says, you know, uh, I'm not going to do that every night. <laughs> and I said, I said, London, 
this is just like having sex for me. A girl said that exact same thing. And I'm going to tell you the exact same <laughs> thing I said to her. I don't need to do it every night. I just needed to do it once. I needed to do it the first time. I needed to get over that hurt, you know? And right, right. It, you know, and he laughed at that. And he said to me, you're going to be okay. You're going to be fine. And and we did it a few more times, actually. And I ended up, uh, I, let, I, I stopped working for him uh, about a year later, but not before I did two weeks at the Copacabana in New York. Right. Yeah, so that was that was pretty trippy. So right. yeah, stand up. That's that's why I'm back doing it now. Like I I just booked a gig for January, uh, uh, you know, just for not even the money so much as the fact that yeah, I'm I'm just I just love being up there, man. It's just it's it's the most fun you could have with your with your clothes on. <laughs> So and the older and the older I get, it's the most fun I can have. <laughs> so, right, right. So my question to you is, what, what, how did you find the confidence to go up there and just to do stand up? Because I've always, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you how. I got an answer for you, man. I got a, I got a real serious answer. All right, All right. What's the answer? You see that? You see that picture behind me? Yes. Okay. So, so that picture. It is, if you give me a second, I'll find it on my, uh, look for it on my uh, uh, phone. That picture is uh, uh, me and the Three Stooges when, okay. when I was uh, 10 years old. Right. Uh, when, I, when I was 10 years old, my father hired the Three Stooges to um, perform at, the, if you can see this, we can get close. Yeah, I see it. Okay, so that's uh, Mo, Larry, Curly Joe, and okay. uh, my, my little sister who was there with us. And then that's me when I was 10, right? So, right. so um, what happened was I was, I was uh, uh, in my run-up to my 10th birthday. Um, my father said to me, you know, you got a huge birthday coming up here, this whole 10 birthday. My dad right. was like an out-of-the-box aluminum siding salesman. It wasn't like a regular father. So you got you to put view this through the lens that I was raised by somebody who was a rule breaker who didn't really have a lot of rules except you know like the the the, the decent ones like don't hurt people and be nice and whatever the rest right. of it he did whatever the fuck he wanted so so um he said you're going to be 10 that's a that's a big deal because you know you start out this decade of your life as a little boy but when you're 20 you'll be a young man and it's a big decade for you. So right. let's let's do something special. So uh, he said, you can have whatever you want. And I said, all right, I want the Three Stooges. And, and instead of saying, oh, no, that's ridiculous. You know, I can't ever. He said to me, all right, I'll look into it. So, so he called a friend of his who was the talent booker at the Holiday House, a nightclub where we lived in Pittsburgh, and got the name of their agent found out that they were going to be in Pittsburgh the, the January after my birth. My birthday is in September. So they, they were going to be there the following January for two weeks. So my dad called their agents and, and, and made a tentative deal subject to my approval. And that was that uh, he would throw a birthday party for me at this Holiday House nightclub and uh, invited you know, as many people as I wanted to invite. And that uh, uh, he'll pay the Stooges a separate fee and they'll do a show for us. Oh, okay. So my, my dad said, my dad said, it's three months after your birthday, not on your birthday, but that's the best I can do. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, book it, Dano, you know, just do it, <laughs> just do it, just fucking do it. So I had, I have the party, right? So right. there I am 
dressed like that. I'm at about 60 people, friends and family, and a couple of people who just couldn't fucking believe that a guy would hire the Three Stooges for his kid uh, uh, showed up. And um, halfway through the show, uh, uh, Mo stops what they're doing, grabs the microphone and says, ladies and gentlemen, we're all here to celebrate Mark's birthday, Mark's 10th birthday. Where's Mark? So, you know, my, my dad says, raise your hand. So I raise my hand, right? So uh, uh, Mo starts talking to me. He said, Mark, uh, uh, your dad tells us that you're Pittsburgh's number one Three Stooges fan. And I, I just kind of naturally stood up so he could hear me, right? And I said, yes, I am. And as a matter of fact, I know all your material. And then Mo said to me, well, why don't you come up on this stage and show us? Oh, wow. So I fucking froze, right? I didn't know <laughs> what to do. I looked at my dad. I never forget. My dad leans over to me and says, no time to explain this now, but get your ass up on that stage. And I went up on the stage and he handed me a mic. Mo handed me a microphone of my own. And I started doing you know, yuck, yuck, yuck. And I took the role of Curly, Curly Howard, right? And right. Mo Larry the Cheese, Niagara Falls, slowly I turn, step by step, inch by inch, right? And the Stooges started cracking up because I was the embodiment of Curly Howard, right? right. And they, they, that Mo just like flipped out. He stops it again, puts his hand on my forehead, like, like this is what it looked like, right? And he puts his hand on my forehead and says, I W. The fourth stooge. Oh, that's that, that's cool. Cool. That was that man. It was like it was what I later found out in life was like an acid trip, right? <laughs> like <laughs> blew me. I I just I didn't my body my my I you know I was like floating above myself, right? Because right. people were, people were applauding and screaming, and I felt this this thing, this tidal wave, this tsunami of love and affection come my way, and it wrapped me up, man. It just fucking wrapped me up. And I said, that's it. That's it. That's what I want. So I go on stage to, to feel what I felt when I was 10. Because so it wasn't so much. It's not so much that I have a confidence. It's like my wife says to me, she said, you could just talk to a million people live, right? You could just wouldn't even fucking bother you. And I said, no, nope, I don't care. And she and it's, it's that. Ooh, I, I feel the cuddle, man. I feel that, you know, I just feel it. And it feels like really amazing. So right. that's so so that's that's where it comes from, I think. Yeah, well, you bet me. I probably shit myself if I went on stage in front of everybody, make a damn fool of myself. But yeah, my wife can't speak in front of people either. I know she could like bitch me out, like she's five hundred people, right? <laughs> like I feel like there are five hundred people talking to me, but she talks to more than three people, and she she doesn't. It's very uncomfortable for her. Right. Right. I don't know, man. Like you said, maybe on the bucket list, I'll, I'll maybe on the bucket list, I'll try to do an open mic night. Open mic. I, I can give you some advice about that. Okay, give like, later. On. I never, I never think that you know if there are five hundred people in an audience, I never think I'm five hundred people. I only, I, I'm talking to one person. Okay. And and that's a that's a, a performing technique. What you try to do is is uh, uh, as quickly as you can is make the audience one consciousness. Right. Then you're only dealing with one person. Okay. And if you decide to split them up, men and women, you know, whatever category you want to do, you can, that's your control. And then you snap them back together when, when, you know, when you're done with that, that's, okay. that's your, that's a, 
performing technique right and, and things to think about but just think like it's one person like just think like you're sitting in your living room talking to a few friends one or two friends just think of it like that and don't don't try to don't try to like do anything other than just that's your mindset okay you know might give that a try might get a try or not we'll see now you now what now I, i'm sure for 10 year olds you it was like it was an amazing feeling to meet the three students like how surreal was it for you to actually for them to be there at your birthday party putting on a show for you and then having them dub you the fourth stooge i'll tell you how surreal it was it's it's trippy uh 63 years later right <laughs> it's still trippy 63 years later you know like i've i tell people that story and and they have the same look on their face as uh, faces as you do you know because it's like an unbelievable story right like, i have the receipts right I, I you know it's a it's a real story in fact i have uh, a couple of friends that i'm still friends with who were actually at that party so they remember it right you know, it 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 was the day man it was just you know, it was it was sort of this thing that lit up my life. It lit up my life, lit up the path I was going to walk on. Right. So that, you know, outside of outside of, uh, you know, the obvious, like you said, that that it was just something fucking trippy as hell for a 10 year old kid back right. in those days or any days. Right. But it it because from that moment on, all I did was watch TV and go to movies like that's all I cared about. TV and movies, TV and movies. I mean, I used to get in trouble for watching TV. Then I'd get punished and not be allowed to go to the movies. Then I'd sneak out and go to the movies. It was just, it was horrible at times, but that's all I wanted to do. I watched every stand-up comedian on television, right? I would then go to school and then do their jokes and, you know, just, you know, just fucking, I aimed myself where I am. I, I right. just wanted to do it my entire life. Well, that's to the exclusion of a lot of other things. This is all I've ever wanted to do. Well, that's cool that you, you know, that you had aspiration, you had a dream, and you're technically living the dream right now. I I think that's really cool because um like up well when I was growing up, and I'm pretty sure even the older generation, not many parents pushed their kids to pursue a creative path you know like a oh like a, man my dad was my dad my father when he got out of the army in world war ii uh went went to work for his uncle in pittsburgh who owned at that time uh a, a big restaurant in the downtown right. area you know and then opened up a nightclub uh that was the number one nightclub in town for a few years so he my father was was the manager of the club so he got a whole taste of that and became friends with a lot of people and and um you know just uh sorry no you're fine you're fine and uh um you know he just uh uh got to know people so when i he when he saw me and saw that's what i wanted to do he was extremely encouraging of it what's up y'all i'm back it looks different uh i'm a so something happened, so we had to make part A and part B, which means fun, more fun editing job for me. But hey, I do it because I love y'all, and I want to continue to talk to my man Mark here. So, Mr. Mark, um, oh, Mike, okay, there we go. So, Mr. Mark, I, I, I know you from a certain movie, 
I'm pretty sure a lot of people will know your face from a certain movie, but um, you played in a, well, kind of, it, it was kind of a trend, well, it was an important movie to horror, if, if, if you will, well, if you classify horror, I classify it as horror, but you played in The Last House on the Left. Yes. And for those that do not know, um, The Last House on the Left, it consisted of of uh, two two girls being violently assaulted by a by a family and and um they 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 kill one they kill one chick and they supposedly kill the other chick and she survives and she gets back to her family and and surprise surprise the people that assaulted her run into the family i'm not going to tell you the rest of that movie because you should see for what happened yourself and Oh, if you want to talk about poetic justice. Oh. <laughs> yeah, y'all just go watch that movie. But, um, see, now, I wasn't there when the movie premiered, but I was reading up on it, and apparently a lot of people felt really uneasy about this movie when it first came out. It made a lot of people very sick. It, um... Uh... It was strange to see people just really having that that kind of reaction. It's funny you mention that because, um, uh, like I told you in in part A, um, Last House was recently part of an exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art. Right. What I didn't tell you was uh, the, the the context of the exhibit, and that was films that have a visceral effect on the human body. Right. So Last House was one of those films that had a, a physical effect on people. It made people feel a certain way physically. Okay. Hmm. I'm probably thinking, how did I feel? Well, at that point, I, I didn't already seen uh, what you call the Iceberg movies. If y'all don't know, the ice, um, the Iceberg is... It's level to these horror movies. You have the top of the iceberg, which, you know, it's, it's bad, not that bad. But then when you get to under the iceberg, oh, you, you, you get to some of the most gruesome films. So when I first saw the Last House on the Left, when I, when I first saw that, oh, I didn't think that they, this could get through the censors in the 70s because it was, for, well, for its time, it was very graphic. Yeah, well, it was banned. First of all, it was banned in England for, you know, like... They banned everything. <laughs> yeah, for two or three decades. And, you know, the Catholic Church condemned us. Uh, you know, different other relig religious organizations condemned us. But somehow, you know, it, it made it... What happened was the film was released and was doing okay in drive-in theaters, right? Because that's how what it was right. made for. It was made to be like uh, a, a late-night drive-in date night scary movie kind of thing and then right. and then a couple of months after it was released <clears throat> i don't know how roger ebert got a hold of one a copy and watched it and wrote a three and a half out of four star review in the chicago uh, uh sun times and literally overnight we went from drive-in movies they pulled it out of the drive-ins and Sean Cunningham was scrambling around his office trying to fill an order for like 1,100 or 1,200 prints nationwide. And that's what broke it real wide was Roger Ebert's review. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. It changed everything, literally overnight. Yeah, man. Like, um, like I said, movies, like, I, I tell people, like, movies like that, it's not everybody's cup of tea because some people can't handle the violence in those movies. But, oh, go ahead. Now, what I was going to say was, you said movies like that, right? Right. Okay. Keep in mind, Last House on the Left was the original yes, movie the original. like that. <laughs> right. Right. No, but I'm I'm just saying I'm I'm referring to times now. Yes, of even, course. Like even still, like like uh, I don't know if you heard of this movie, this movie that's sweeping the nation right now. Ind- independent film, just like how basically Last House on Left, Last House on Left was. It's called Terrifier Two. No, I haven't heard of it. So basically, it follows a killer clown named Art the Clown, and he's he's just murdering people in the most gruesome, most mean-spirited ways and in the um in the article it says oh people are passing out and puking and walking out of this film when i saw it i was like it's not that bad i mean it's bad don't get me wrong don't get me wrong people. oh no we're good i like don't get me wrong people it's, it's fucked up but as far as like we see so much violence now on tv and whatnot you you kind of get desensitized to like over the top gruesome violence because shoot, every show tries to do it nowadays. But back in yeah, the day, you know, the, the, the thing about last house is, and I, I've had a kind of a ongoing growing relationship with it. Right. Right. And when I, I first, when I did it and it came out, I thought a certain way about it. You know, right. I had, I had a certain opinion that was that nobody was ever going to come and see it right and right. and um then people did come and see it then roger ebert's review came out you know it's, so i've had a my, my opinion of it and what it actually is ha, has changed over the years a few years ago i i was watching i was at a screening i was watching it again hadn't seen it in a while so i i had sort of fresh eyes on it um and i got to a certain place in the film and I said that's what it's about so like I don't view it as a horror movie I I view it as a skirmish in the ongoing class warfare struggle that's going on in the country right and what led me to that was I watched the dinner scene very carefully and that dinner scene is is what showed me that really what the movie was about was the difference in these two social socioeconomic classes. And it just so happens one of them has had has always had it so bad has been a criminal, right? Right. So they're, they're vastly different uh, uh, places on, on the social and economic ladders. Right. And the battle that's going on with Krug's comments and him looking at the way they're dressed and looking at the defects in their clothes and how no matter how they try, they're still scumbags. Right. When 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 they come to an intellectual, I think Last House was the movie where Krug came to the intellectual realization that he was a scumbag, right? right. I think before this, he just went through life thinking everything he did was right. He had a momentary lapse of immorality and realized 
that he is in fact a scum. And then once he realized their fates were sealed, that was it. Right. And man, I gotta say, like you, I don't really view this as, as a horror movie. Well, in a way, I still put it in that genre. But to me, I view it more as a thriller because that's what it is. Because yeah. one thing I do like about this movie, like, like that dinner scene, it sets up a lot. Of, like this movie sets up a lot of tense moments. Oh you yeah. Actually, you feel you you especially feel for the um for the girl at the like, cause the way that this movie starts off, I don't know if it if it was done if it was done like you know that often, but you legit followed the girl and her friend to the point to where bad things happen to them. Well, that's the thing. I do a lot of I do a lot of horror film conventions and right. uh, and I have heard throughout the years because it it. At some point, many, many years ago, I, I asked myself, why hasn't this thing just, you know, faded away? Why, why is right. it still here? Why are people still talking about it, right? Right. And I started to hear from fans, by the way. I've learned more about the film from fans than I personally ever knew. Uh, right. I started to hear the same thing, that it, it's one of those films that's become cross-generational. Parents... Right handed off to children and i've heard on on numerous occasions uh, uh teenagers tell me that their mom or their dad made them watch it because they wanted them to know in real in real terms what could happen if they made a wrong decision right and that's and to me that's where the horror element comes in because i feel like the realest horror is always the ones that's plausible mm -hmm. because like you said um, especially like, you know, 60s kind of like 70s, they kind of got their act together a little more. But, you know, six in, in the 60s, you had these serial killers running around killing people because Americans just well, just the world in general. They were they were more or less secure with their households because people would sleep with their doors unlocked. Yeah. They would they, they would um, be out late like they'd be out late at night in the middle of nowhere thinking that nothing happened to them. So that's why I feel like the last house on the left was really, it was scary because yeah. that, that could, the fact, I think what made, what makes it scary is how hopeless the situation is because the, the filmmaker, he purposely leaves it on them being tortured and assaulted for a long, for, you know, for the duration, because that's the horror of like, there's no way out for the, for those two girls. And no. I think, no, they're, they're 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 dead the moment right. they enter the apartment. Right, and I think that's why that's why I like independent films because you know it's a low it's a lower budget, but you can there's a bad independent film then there's a good one. A bad one, they'll try to go beyond their limits of what the budget entails, right? But a good independent film, what they'll do is instead of trying to make it fantastical they'll like they'll use like cinematic like like cinematic elements elements in the script and basically work with their budget and that's what i liked about that movie because everything felt real and i'm pretty sure back in the back in the 70s it felt yeah. real to a lot of people and i think that's it the charm very, and, and the fact yeah and the fact that none of us were known actors right another level of reality because it wasn't like you you know that's richard dreyfus in this part or that's this person you know right that's Brad. No, we were just four people 
and nobody knew who the hell we were right yeah and like that's why i like i adore like i adore that film plus it has that it kind of has that grindhouse feel to it a little bit which is i'm a huge fan of grindhouse films i i love like i love the old cheesy grindhouse films but this was it was grindhouse but nothing about it was cheesy everything was just uncomfortable and unsettling yeah that's what that was you know remember it was wes's first film right so so, uh he didn't really have anything you know he didn't have a lot of experience to fall back on he had just pure storytelling instinct right and you know this was his first film so right and and if you watch that film you guys you can see like you can see what Wes Craven did with Scream and like just some of some of his other movies. Even I even throw a, a new nightmare in there. I I like I I really loved it. I really enjoyed the new night a new nightmare. But you can see in his in the last house and left of how that talent was always there because he didn't need he didn't need a lot. He didn't need he he needed only a little to tell you a lot because that's what that's what this film yeah. is and that's what i do enjoy about the film like uh, for some people it still might be uncomfortable for them but for me i'm so i'm i was in like once we find out that she survived i'm invested because when they come in contact with the family it's like oh i don't know how this gonna go i kind of want to go one way but it could possibly go another way and yeah and luckily it went the way that I wanted it to go. And um they tried to remake it back in the um they tried they did a remake. It was okay. Yeah. I I uh I, I didn't I hadn't seen it. Um and I was asked by a on by an online horror magazine out of uh England. Right. Uh, and it's there's also a symposium called Cine Excess. I was asked to please screen it and uh casting the two so you know i did that and i i I sort of trashed it i guess in the sense that i i I said i i didn't i thought it was overproduced you you mentioned something a few minutes ago about when there's not a lot of money you gotta you know you gotta uh be creative you gotta be creative yeah right well the opposite is true uh when there's enough when there's enough or too much money you, there, there is a tendency to overproduce things, and when right. things, when when the production, when 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 the, I guess level of production, goes beyond the story point, right? It, right. it looks odd. It looks odd, right? It looks like right. like a gilded lily, right? It's like it's like too much. And one of the one of the things that made our version of Last House really scary was the bare bonesness of it right because right because it it was it was human horror it was human on human horror stripped down without the benefit of any like conveniences visual conveniences to fall back on um, right wes had that camera up on the shit all the time right so right. so i i thought the remake was was more of an executed deal than it was a film being made. And I always ask myself something about remakes, and that is that if it wasn't for the original film, would this film stand on its own two feet? And right. 
And I don't believe if, if you know, if they didn't have the title of Last House, that, that, that that particular film, as it was done, would stand on its own TV. Notwithstanding Gary Dillahunt, who's terrific, and, and a couple of other actors who were great, you know, uh, uh, notwithstanding that, I just don't think the I don't think the film had the the distilled uh, 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 human horror that we had. Right. I think it focused like it's been a while since I've seen it, but from what I do remember, it was just first for, like you said, it was overproduced. It, it felt like it felt like a studio movie. It just felt like yeah. it felt like a studio movie, and I felt like it relied more on the violence itself. Yeah. Like, you know, why? Then you, then you know actually caring like because unlike the first film i really didn't care about the girl after what happened to her because they really didn't give me nothing to grab like she didn't feel she didn't feel like a person if you get what i'm saying she just felt like a character there was no innocence about her right right so when those things like yeah i felt bad that things happened to her but then it was like it was like um unlike the first movie where you know you follow the, the mm -hmm. main character and her friend and you get to ingratiate yourself with her mm -hmm. and like oh you start to care about her and then when that happens you're like oh man and both of I'm, those girls sandra and lucy played those parts wonderfully oh yeah they played that like 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 i said um even though i glow about it there's still things that is wrong with the movie but like that's that's what any movie no movie's perfect like no movie's perfect but we don't have any night shots there's no yeah. night shots yeah yeah which to be honest i think that was still a smart choice because to be honest horror that happens during the day just to me is is terrifying a lot scarier because you think that that the daytime when the sun's out oh ain't nothing bad can happen then yeah. when you have this family like well i i i'm I, I, fucked ain't i <laughs> yeah the only real nice stuff were, were when i picked the girls up that's it. right that's it was all day right and then like in in the in the in the remake like i said i felt like it was done as as a studio project and not for somebody that loved like had a love for the original film right because it was like us hanging with the girls it was just there it like like basically they used the girls as a plot as a setup to get to the to um the the assaulters being killed off Correct. i feel like like in, unlike in the first movie you were really invested in the story from the very beginning what was going to happen to these girls and how how the, our main character would get through this but in the in the remake you don't get that it's just oh we we just put this here so we can put the put the assaulters there so they can get slaughtered by by, by the father yeah. i mean it was it was cool kills i mean a lot of it looked bad because of the cgi but it was yeah, cool well, you got to do that shit you know we and we were everything was on the day too every right was on the day. there was nothing right no, no process of anything everything was right right there right and that's what i like i love that i love that first film like i didn't know it was the 50th anniversary so i'm glad that i got oh thank you for saying that man yeah thank you like i'm glad i got to talk to you because if you talk to my co-host on my on my show i'm a huge horror fan I, I I love horror. Like okay. I love horror since I was a kid. So I probably should have been watching it as a kid, but I've always had a love, especially slashers. I've always liked slashers because for one, it's the more realistic horror. Well, except yeah, when you get no supernatural shit attached to it. 
Yeah, that's why I. That's why I'm. I'm I was always a huge fan of um, Michael Myers, because mm. he was just a man until right. those shitty sequels in the '80s. But <laughs> but I, like Jason Voorhees, he's fun, but he was never never my favorite. Even though we shared the the same name, he was never my favorite. Scream, what like Wes Craven? I love Scream. The original Scream yeah. is so so good. Yeah, even, yeah. even most of the sequels are good, but. It's just I love horror just because I like to be I like to be thrilled or scared. Like nobody like I wanna be happy all the time. I gotta feel other emotions, Mark. Yeah, I'll stay with happy. <laughs> <laughs> so my question for you is after um Last House on the Left, well my green screen screen screen's acting crazy. Uh after Last House on the Left, where did your career go after that? Um I was I was doing stand-up and going on auditions and uh just eventually fell into writing i, okay. I really i really and then i wrote a script uh a feature uh, a tv movie thing gave it to a director friend of mine who had an agent in california in los angeles he gave it to his agent his agent sold it to nbc and i was brought to california and stayed okay oh. and then, uh that agent became my agent and uh, hooked me up at the comedy store. And I started all that. And then I just started writing in television. And that's what I did for most of my career. Okay. And um, if you don't mind me asking, what class were you up from the comedy store? Like, like what uh, year? Class of 70, the original uh, paid regulars, class of 77. Okay. With, uh, Robin Williams and David Letterman and Jay Leno and uh, Richie Lewis. And Tom Dreesen, Michael Keaton, uh, okay. Paul Mooney, those guys. A lot of the people you named, I love. And that's just, it's just really cool to sit here and talk to you that you've, you know, bumped elbows with a lot of people that I adore. Not I only did just. Show, I did shows with every one of them all the time. Oh, really? What? Yeah, I was on the same show. I was on the same show. The same show. Like? What? He's a great guy. Robin. Robin was a sweetheart. He was uh, the purest natural performer I've ever seen in my life. And he was also a kind, decent, just a, uh, just a terrific guy. Just a, a, like a great guy. Just, you know, we weren't, we weren't like best friends, but we were often, you know, in the beginnings of our careers at the same, in the same places at the same time. So we became friendly and then we became pals and uh, uh, he was at Paramount doing uh, Mork and Mindy and I was at Paramount um, on a show working, you know, as a writer and we'd run into each other and we'd have dinner at the improv occasionally. So we were like casual friends, uh, but I knew him well enough to know what a what and had enough personal experience with him to know just what a decent, uh, lovable, great guy he was. Man, that is awesome. Like, I, I, I can honestly say, but besides Michael Jackson, I, Robin Williams' death was one of the few celebrity deaths that really, that really, yeah. really almost broke but you me. Know, but you know something? This, is gonna, this might sound weird. Robin Williams couldn't say hello to you without using his whole body. If, if, Robin, if Robin knew you and 
saw you after not having seen you for a while. Right. He, gave, he would give you an extraordinarily dramatic hello. So, so very animated. Extremely animated. And that's just who he was, right? And, right. And when I heard what happened, I, I you know, when, when I heard the news of his suicide, I was, you know, a, as overcome with grief as anyone who, you know, actually knew him, right? Right. Uh, and then when I found out he had this disease, uh, I reached an understanding why that may, wouldn't, I don't know if that would have been my choice to do that, because I'm, a, you know, like a giant chicken shit, but um, I understand a guy like Robin who who was so his body and his spirit were so intertwined and were so reactive with each other that right. to lose control over one I just I, I, I get what he I, I understand what he did right? right the guy I knew couldn't I don't think the guy I knew could live with with uh, with that kind of disconnection in, in his existence. I, I don't know. Right. And it's just so crazy. That, right? Yeah. Huh? And it, it, it's just so crazy because people like, even though I didn't know him, I just felt like, I just felt very uh, like seeing Robin Williams, it just seeing his presence just made me very happy just because he was always smiling. Like every interview I saw him with, every time he was on screen, he was just always smiling, have a good time. And we know somebody's going through something like that there's a saying that says the ones that are that always the ones that are the happiest are always the ones that are depressed and yeah i mean you know i i my years that i hung out with him and we were we were in those same places in the same time that wasn't an issue back then i don't think because right you know everybody was everybody was on that juice of early 80s Right. Our careers were happening. We were having the best times ever. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, he seemed, he was fine. You know, he was, he was an amazing guy. So that's all. I got nothing, nothing but good things to say about him. Oh yeah, man. Like, (laughs) even though, like, like I said, I honor, I honor people in death, not just with the good, just not with the good, but also with the bad. Even though some of some bad Robin Williams movies, like I said, I'm the type of person I find enjoyment out of bad movies because they can be so bad that they're that they're hilarious. Because like a lot of people grew up like like nostalgia. Captain Hook, I, I think it was Captain Hook. I, I think yeah, the Captain Hook. It it was just hilarious just seeing a grown yeah, man, yeah. a grown man play Peter Pan, and the whole time I'm like, this is crazy. But well, I don't, you know. Sometimes when you're in that situation, you you do one movie for money and one movie for art, and you know you get lucky enough to have those choices. And we've all listen. I've done jobs for money. I've done jobs because right. I love the project. And and like I'm in a movie right now that's uh, just on you know just been released and on its way out called right. Once in Future Smash. Right. And and uh, I got paid like hardly anything to sit there for an afternoon and do this. But I did it because the, pro- the producer I knew 
is a pal of mine and asked me to do it and then said, look, this is what it's about. And I just loved the idea and said, man, that's fine. I want I want to be part of this. And now I'm glad I right. did because it's now like doing really well and, and is getting a lot of heat and a lot of exposure. So, right. you know, it's a strange business. People do things for different reasons. And oh, yeah. so I, I don't know. But Robin, uh, you, you won't see another one of him for a long, oh, long no. time. Oh, no, it, it it's like certain it's, it's like certain ones because like I said, even though Captain Hook was bad, I was loving Robert Robin Williams' performance and Tim Curry, like it like it was just a very fun. It was like it was just very fun and uh, like Robin, he just he he was you can tell like either he was having fun or he said you know what i'm just going to play this as campy as i can and He's i was in he was on to, on camera on stage for the most part except i think for that last series he was involved with i think he was always having fun oh yeah man like like i said i envy guys like you and robin because y'all are basically having fun making money while having fun i wish i could do that we trying to get trying to get this podcast off the ground all right <laughs> But yeah, like um now, now I was looking at like um, so you said that you're a writer, right? So, well, I say it. The Writers Guild says it. My, you know, my twenty years of credits, thirty years of credits. Say okay. It. Okay. Okay. So the universe. Okay. So the universe says you're a writer. My bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, like. I'm fucking with what? You. What inspired what inspired you like you know to like you know to want to be a writer like like to want to be a writer because you transitioned from but act, like acting comedy um writer I'm, I'm pretty sure you probably have producer credits in there somewhere I do I do what yeah, inspired so, me yeah well after when Last House came out uh I realized that there was um, an ancillary benefit to being one of the stars of, of a top 10 movie in the United States. And that was that women saw you in a completely different light than they did before you were one of the stars of a top 10 movie in the United States. Right. So, so while Last House was enjoying its, its uh, uh, success arc, I was enjoying as many women as I could, <laughs> and and um, I would I would get sent back to Pittsburgh to do press because it was opening up in a theater there that my cousin my father's cousin was the manager. It's a big deal and shit. And girls from my high school graduating class, uh, a scant three years earlier, would not give me the time of day. Were suddenly offering a, me a whole lot more than just the time of day. Right, uh, uh, which I graciously accepted. Um, so <laughs> then, then uh, that all went away when Last House went away, because it had a very short-lived uh, uh, arc like that. Right, like three and a half, four weeks. Right, I was back in like no man's land again. You know, I was just another fucking out of work actor. Right. So, um, um, I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. One night I was at a party and I saw a guy who didn't look much better than I, I am, right? Skinny little guy with glasses in a corner of a room talking to the most exquisite looking woman, just this gorgeous model. And she, and she was like 
hypnotized, but whatever he was saying, she was wrapped up in it. So I'm moseying on over to, you know, kind of get get wind of what's going on. And I hear this guy say, yeah, well, I'm, I'm not really stuck in my second act, uh, uh, but I've got a character thing I got to deal with in order to allow the next plot point to make sense. And then as soon as I finish the script, uh, I get it to my agent in Los Angeles. And who knows after that? But, you know, uh, I'll get it done. And I went, wow, he's a writer. And she's wrapped up in this. And then they leave together. So I thought to myself, well, shit, I can do that. I can tell girls I'm a writer, right? (laughs) Right. So I went around New York to some bookstores and I bought a whole bunch of uh, books on screenwriting and television writing. And I learned all the key phrases, you know, cut to, dissolve, you know, act two, act one, structure, plot point, you know, uh, rising action, forward action, narrative thrust, all these fucking words that writers use. And I started going around to parties and I developed this rap, right? This whole thing about me being a writer. And I had some imaginary project I was working on. And I, you know, it's that, and man, I was hitting it left and right. It's just like, wow. I tapped into another fucking gold mine, right? And I don't right. even have to do anything. I just have to talk it, right? I don't have right. to do shit. And there it is. So I was, I, I mentioned in part one that, that uh, uh, a commercial director, right? So, so I'm at an audition at the office of N. Lee Lacey and Associates. N. Lee Lacey was a very hot commercial director back in the day. He's the guy who directed that really famous Coca-Cola commercial with Mean Joe Green and that little boy in the oh, tunnel. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yo, right. yo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's the guy who directed that and won a Clio for it. And he and I were pals because I'd done a couple of commercials for him and we just hit it off, right? We were just, you know, right. just a guy, married guy, and we just, you know, hit it off. And he had offices that he owned all over the world, and one of which was in Los Angeles. So right. I'm in his place. Uh, like three or four months into this uh, uh, horseshit rap of mine. And um, I'm doing it to some girl in the waiting room, in the reception area. And she's buying it left and right. And I'm right at the point where she's giving me her phone number and there's a tap on my shoulder. And I turn around and it's Lee, Lee Lacey, the director. Right. Hey, can I talk to you for a second? I said, yeah, she gives me the number and I walk away. And I said, I'll call you. And I walk away. And I said, what's up? And he said, I heard what you were telling that girl. I want to read that script when you're finished. <laughs> I said, dude, I, I got, you know, we're friends. Uh, I'm not really writing anything. He said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, I just do it for women, man. I just do it as it's my thing. You know, it's like, it's what I do to grab women. And, and he says, does it work? And I said, oh yeah, all the time. You just saw it. I have her phone number. He said, Mark, you're an idiot. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? And, and, and Lee said, Mark, if you can get girls to take their pants off because of something you're supposed to be writing, why don't you actually sit down and write it? So, you know, I was a young kid, you know, early 20s. I looked at him and I said, Wow, I never really thought of it that way. <laughs> I'm just trying to get some ass. <laughs> I, I, I didn't look beyond the you know the p word, right? So so um, I sat. Th- I said, he said, 
you write that and you finish it and give it to me, I'm going to read it. And if I like it, I'm going to send it to my agent at William Morris in Los Angeles. So I don't know. I, I think it took me like a year to write it or something because I had no right. idea what I was doing and I was scared. I didn't want to show. So I finished the draft like, you know, eight, nine months, 10 months, a year later. And I gave it to him. And then uh, about a month, six weeks later, he calls me and he said, uh, listen, um, how'd you like to move to California? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I gave it to my agent. My agent gave it to the two guys who are the heads of the TV department. They just sold your script to NBC. If you want to, you're moving to Los Angeles. You can have an office in my place. I'll get you a car and an apartment. You have some money in the bank and you're on your way. And uh, I said, okay. And I think I left like the following Thursday. I just packed everything up and, and that's, so that's how I moved to Los Angeles. I don't have that typical, I came to LA with $2 in my pocket. I had to hitchhike there, you know that story. Not that people don't do that and there's, you know, that's the road for a lot of people. But I landed, uh, uh, the day I landed, I had a car, an apartment, an office. Right. William Morris is my agent, money in the bank. And uh, I was, you know, and, and interestingly enough, pretty much everybody I know came to LA with something, you know, Robin came down and, and was known as like the, the most incredible comedian in San Francisco. Uh, and, right. and he was snapped up by management. I was snapped up by management. Letterman had been there like two weeks before I got to the comedy store or a month before Letterman arrived. Uh, you know, Michael Keaton was there like, I don't know, almost the same time as me. So we all kind of arrived within a certain time frame of each other. Right. Wow, that's yeah. that, that, that's crazy, y'all. Well, hey, the moral of the story is, if you want to get some ass, lie about uh, lie lie about you writing a script. <laughs> and hey, yeah, and, I'll and, tell you. And your pursuit of ass, it can lead to Hollywood. <laughs> Listen, look seriously. I I dropped out of college when I was nineteen. Right. I had I had three life goals in mind. Right. I wanted, first one. I wanted to smoke as much weed as possible. <laughs> okay. Number two, that. number two, I wanted to get with as many different women as possible. Okay. 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 And number three, I wanted to make just enough money to afford the weed and the women. <laughs> okay. Now, well. now I'm 73. I look back on my life and I realize I have greatly exceeded my own expectations. <laughs> I'm way beyond where I where I ever thought I'd be. You're what we like to call leveled up. I am. <laughs> so, man, uh, speaking of your speaking of your life, man, uh, you told me like before we started that you were gonna write a book. Now, I, am I, have, a book. I have a question: Is this book about you? <laughs> I am writing a fictionalized biography of myself, of my life. I'm using the things that happened to me. Okay. That I've created, at least in this version, because I have an agent who thinks it should just be me, uh, an alter ego to, to somebody that I'm, I'm writing about who had right. my life experiences. Right. So I'm going to get another bottle of water right here. Um, okay. 
just out of my my wife bought me these uh these these two really cool refri see that see those the refrigerator yeah yeah so i got one on both sides of the room i got one on the other on this side of the room too my wife bought them for me so that i should never run out of things to drink in my office okay man that's uh crazy so yeah so that that's the, that's the life I, and the title of my book we'll do it in part two the title of my book is dumb effing luck well you know what i, I like that title sorry griffin me no because that's now, what it I'll, is that, yeah that's what that's what my life has been just just dumb fucking luck yeah now you said it's fiction. Like, I don't think it should be fiction because I don't think it should be fiction because from what you told me, it's not like you lived a pretty fun life, pretty fun and funny life. Yeah, I'm writing it. I'm writing a, a draft of it as a, as a fictionalized character. To change it back to me is not anything but you know mechanic work on a computer. Right. But it gives me it gives me an objectivity that I wouldn't have if I just sat around going, well, then I did this, then I did that, then I did this, then I did that. You know. Right. Right. That, that seems creepy to me. So if I write it in narrative form here, it gives me a, it's, it's better for me writing. Okay. Okay. Well, uh, when can we expect this book? Well, um, probably I'll have a draft February, March, April, something like that. And then I'll see what my agent says and go from there. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm cranking it out as fast as I can. All right. Well, I, I'm definitely going to want to check it out because I've had a blast talking to you about things you, in sir. your life and Thank your you journey. No problem. And, and, and your journey for ass was inspiring. <laughs> you know, oh. it's still, it's still uh, at 73. You know, it's like I tell people, I'm the world's most immature 73 year old. I've never grown up. I got older, <laughs> but I never grew up. All the shit I've ever done in my life, right? You know, studios, networks, private jets, suites and hotels, traveled the world. Still the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life was when I was 11 years old at summer camp and I saw a guy in the bunk next to me light a fart. <laughs> Never seen anything cooler than that. I try, I compare everything to that. Is that as cool as a guy lighting a, lighting a fart? Nope, it's not. <laughs> I saw that blue flame. I've never forgotten it. I've heard, I heard the noise. I heard the hairs on his ass singe. I just can't get it out of my head. So, and that's now so I, warn, I warn people in advance that I am really fucking immature. Don't expect some, you know, smart, wise old man. Cause you get a guy who likes to look at people lighting their farts. <laughs> Ain't nothing wrong with that, man. You, you're not immature. You're just having fun with life. You're just having fun with life. I guess. <laughs> now, can you, can you write me a note? Because my wife tells me just how immature I am. You know what? I, I gotta write. I I feel like I gotta write apology notes to everybody because everybody. I I don't take stuff serious. I don't because anybody takes stuff serious because you can't be serious all the time. Like like on my show, yes, I critique movies in the best way I can, but I try to I try to make it entertaining. I don't wanna. I can't be a. I can't be a Siskel and Ebert. I, I I can't be that. I'm a. I can't be straight laced. I gotta. No, I gotta, no, you gotta listen. I pride myself on the fact that I'm one of the few parents who has 
children, all three who have said to me at one point in their lives, Dad, please grow up. <laughs> I'm pretty sure my daughter will probably tell me that when she gets older. She probably says that now behind my back. I need to watch out for her. <laughs> how, how old is she? She's a seven. Oh, that's a great age. Oh, yeah. Not ready for 15 yet. Not, not ready for them teenage years yet. I'm you know the that. problem with kids, uh, Jason? What's that? You feed them, they grow. Yeah, yeah. And I'm short, so she won't grow that tall, maybe. <laughs> now, we're getting towards the end of the interview, but I always like to ask this question, Mark. Sure. So, you're okay, so we'll go with, you know, we'll, we'll, go, with com- we'll go with comedians, since, you know, that's the field you started in. Uh-huh. If you if you were to build your Mount Rushmore, who would be the faces on your Mount Rushmore? For stand-up comedian? Yes. Okay. Um, let's see. Well, I'll just go back to the beginning of the modern era, which is the 50s. Right. So I say Lenny Bruce. Okay. Got three more. Somebody, people gonna get left out. I'm on. I'm, I'm want to know. The people want to know. This is not in any order, okay? Okay. Richard Pryor. Got to. I I, I agree with that one. Um. Jackie Mason. Okay. And Robin Williams. Okay. No, I, I can get with that. I, I can get with that Mount Rushmore. I, I, I can get with that one. I can, Especially Richard Pryor. I, uh, like I said, there was a lot of I things. Saw Richard, I, I saw Richard live a lot at the comedy store. Oh, uh, you were. He's just. You, you were lucky. I met, I met Richard a couple of times, but Paul Mooney was a pal of mine. Okay. How was how was Paul Mooney? Okay, I'll tell you a story. Okay. You got time, you got time for for my Paul Mooney story? Oh yeah, I got time, man. I got time. It's Friday. Okay. I, got, I got all the time to work. So 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 um, I became a regular once I became a regular at the comedy store. Right. Uh, which happened very quickly. It happened like in three weeks from the time I got there. Um. Everybody, I started to meet comedians like, you know, Letterman and George Miller and Johnny Dark and, you know, uh, Tom Dreesen, who's a, uh, they're all terrific guys. Everyone I mentioned, fucking great guys. And right. they all, they all, Argus Hamilton, Mike Binder, they all warned me about Paul Mooney, right? They said, look, right. don't say hello to Mooney. Don't look at him. He doesn't really like white people. Doesn't just don't just stay away from him because you know you don't want to get into anything with him. Don't 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 do this. So look, I'm an East Coast street kid, right? Bending right. over, not in my DNA. <laughs> so <laughs> I I take the exact opposite approach. Every time I saw Paul Mooney in the halls of the comedy store or anywhere on the comedy store property. I was, hello, Paul, how are you? Hi, Paul. 
hello, Paul. Right. Paul Mooney, how are you? And he would, Paul was, was always like dressed impeccably. Like, like, you know, it's like he was dressed thus just the classy side of a pimp. Right. Like, like Paul was like right, right on the outside of it, but he was always impeccably dressed and good shit right. too. Not, not crap. Good shit. And he always wore hats and he was the tall guy, taller, taller than I was. And he would always look down at people. He, he had a way of looking down his nose at people. Very condescending. Because everybody, because you all knew that, that Mooney was like Richard's right-hand man, right? And Richard was the hot shit comedian at the time at the store. So Mooney was, was not only brilliant himself on stage, but right. he was Richard's guy. So, so um, this went on and on. And, and after like a week or two, he started giving me these weird fucking looks. Like, why are you even talking to me? He never said a word. Never, ever uttered a word. But just his face. Why are you talking to me, you little white man? What do you want from me? You know, like I could see it in his eyes, right? He said, you right. understand? I could sneeze and blow you away. But never said a word. So one night, I'm on stage. Uh, in the original room doing my act. And now it's not five minutes, it's 15 minutes set, right? right. It's going along well, you know, everything's working the way I wanted to, getting laughs, you know, having fun. And and um, I wasn't new to the stage. I had done like 150, 200 club days with London Lee. So I wasn't new to this. So uh, um, I walk off the stage to very nice applause. And I walk past him because he was leaning up against the back wall of the comedy store like this watching me and and uh uh he watched me walk off stage walk back and uh i walked past him and i just looked up and i said why hello mr mooney <laughs> and he looked at me again and he said well 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 another funny little jew ain't that just what hollywood needs and then he just walked away and ever, and ever since then, then he started talking to me. So there were these weird stages, right? Like like first he didn't he ignored me completely, then he scowled at me, then he looked at me condescendingly, then he made a comment about my act that was sort of like a left-handed, you know, you're pretty good, you're okay, and then it it then it went to got up to like friendly at some point, like after that, where where we would just have like a regular conversation. He didn't hate white people. Paul Mooney hated injustice. Paul Mooney hated oppression. Paul Mooney hated inequality. And and that's that those were his, you know, the things that he battled. He didn't battle white people. He was his sweetheart. He was a right. good man. He was a great father. He was he was a good friend, you know. Uh, he had just as many white people friends as black people friends. You know, he was, he was, but he didn't, he, he was not a man who countenanced bullshit. And if right. you were in an audience, if you were in a Paul Mooney audience and you said some, he said something on stage and you said something back to him, you better fucking duck. Right. Because, because he could just cut you to pieces right from the stage. Oof. That's a, that's actually a funny story because the first the first words, his first words too. I just, I can just picture that, and 
That should be in your book. Because that's yeah, hilarious. That, that, that. I've never been. Look, well, well, well. Another funny little Jew. <laughs> like, Hollywood needs. It was just like, if I was just like, okay, I get the Jew part, but why you got to call him a little? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. No, man, I, I, I read the room. I knew what he was doing. He was, <laughs> he, was, he was being as friendly to me as his personality would have let him at the moment. And I knew that. That's funny, man. Man, like I, um, like I said, I mostly know Paul Moody because he wrote for you know Richard, right? Yeah, yeah. No, but he the was Richard. an he was an outstanding comedian on his own. Yeah, and um, for people that don't, that for other people around my age, they also know him for the Chappelle Show because he right. did most he did most of writing for the Chappelle Show, and yeah. I still feel this all the time. I don't really agree with Chappelle's comedy now. It ain't as fun to me as it was back in the day, but the Chappelle Show. To me, was peak comedy on on, on yeah. television. I mean, I think um, I think I remember like Byron Allen when Paul passed away. I think Byron Allen wrote something about Paul. You know, Paul was an influence on everyone. Oh Byron, yes, yeah. Byron met Paul when Byron was like fourteen years old. Right. Yeah, like yeah, like um, I don't think a lot of people. Well, well, probably now that he's dead, but I feel like. Paul Mooney, he didn't get all like all the flowers that he deserved. Yeah. Because, like I said, he was extreme. Like, with comedy, people think that comedy is easy because you know you tell jokes to your friends, you think you're funny. Like, no, comedy is all about timing. It's all about it's all about how you how you, how you land the joke, the punchline, and it's how you can you know control play like play the crowd. And Paul Mooney's comedy, it it, it it's funny. It don't come off as it don't it comes off it don't come off as too offensive, and if it does come off as offensive, it's hilarious. But it's equal. <laughs> no, nah, he's, he's a good man. Yes, he's and like smart, smart, funny, clever. Oh good yes, man. and it's a shame that like it's a, it's a shame that he's not here with us no more. But hey, he brought a lot of joy to to people's lives, especially my life. Like I he did, he did to mine too. All right, we got to wrap it up. My wife is uh, giving me the signal. All right, she's giving you a signal. All right, well, Mrs. Scheffler, I don't want to catch your wrath, so we're going to get up out of here. But, Mark, it was so fun talking to you. Good pleasure. Good luck to you. I hope I hope your podcast uh, uh, explodes. I, th- I hope you do really well. Uh, you should have enough here to edit something, you know, like an hour down easy, right? Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. All right. Mike, no, go ahead. Yeah, man. Oh, oh no! I would just say yeah. I, I, I'll probably just like keep the bulk of it. Just probably edit out the part where we got disconnected. But yeah, man, I'm definitely gonna start putting this up because I had a lot of fun. All right, it's it's always cool to talk to somebody from a movie that I generally adore. So all right, thank you very much for saying you. that. That's that's uh, that's a that's a warm comment. All right, man. Well, you have a great night. Tell the you wife I'm so. sorry. Tell the wife I said I'm sorry. Don't beat me up again. No, it's you. okay. It's, we're good. All right, man. Take it easy. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Raider.